See, what happened is on the side of the river, the, the wonderful people that are the DOT comes along and they stretch out that big long arm on their mower and they kind of just mow this little thing right here on the side of the road. Well, what you don't realize is that the actual side of the road is right here. Then right here, it just kind of goes off. But you see that grass had grown up so tall that it was the same height as the other side. So I'm pulling off onto what I think is a shoulder that is, you know, a mile wide when in reality it was only this wide. And I pull farther and farther until the car finally, you know, you think you can drive out of it. That's the man's first inclination. Where I'm going to drive up out of this thing because I've got four-wheel drive, you know. Well, then finally the car is literally sitting almost on its side to where my brother and I have to open the door like, you know, the periscope hatch on a, on a submarine to get out that way. And so we sent the rest of the family to go tubing on the New River, and my brother and I sat there with the car. Well, when you call AAA and you tell them where you are in the middle of Watauga County, they kind of go, well, it might be a while. So what we didn't realize is they're going to send us a tow truck from Deep Gap. Well, the tow truck couldn't get there on time. And all that proceeded to make the however long it would have taken for here in Hickory for a tow truck to respond to you to take three and a half hours for the tow truck to get there to us in the middle of nowhere, Watauga County. And as we sat there, and as we sat there, my dread begins to just build in me, and the anxiety just begins to build in me. And then even when the tow truck gets there, they kind of look at it, and you know, it, if you're from Watauga County, you exactly know exactly, you kind of go, mm. well, how'd you do that? You know, I mean, kind of like this. It's amazing, though, you know, these guys, they are so skilled, I can't even, I, I won't even bore you with all the details, but essentially they did this deal where first they righted the car, and then they pulled the car out, then they dragged it a little bit, and then all of a sudden the whole thing just comes out like, you know, like they had just planned it all along, and it was amazing. But what I will tell you is that here in this text, Jesus says in verse 27, he says, Who of you by worrying can add an hour to your day? Who, who of you by worrying? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. Jesus is absolutely right. It will not add a single moment. But just as Wes said in, in the children's sermon this morning, worry will add burden to your hours. And if you think about the hour that you spent out in the waiting room at the hospital versus the hour that you spent in the hammock at the beach, you know exactly what I'm talking about. One was a weighted, burdensome, icky hour. The other passed by like, you know, you kind of went, how long have I been laying here? Five minutes? And the difference is the burden. So in, in, verses, 20, in verses 19 through 24, in verse 19 through 24, Jesus is talking about greed and, and Jesus is the overlooked sin. Greed is the sin that we're sure that we don't struggle with. Well, if greed was the overlooked sin, then verses 25 through 34 are worry the acceptable sin. Worry the acceptable sin. You know, how many of the last times somebody was worrying, you said, hey, stop sinning. Or when you were worrying about something and fretting and nurturing, nurturing and feeding an anxiety that you had and you were choosing to do it, you didn't say to yourself, I'm sinning. You just go, oh, I'm just worrying. But it's become the acceptable sin, especially in our, listen, this is both simple and complex. Jesus simply says, what does he say in this text? Don't worry. And so on one part of it is simple. It's, it's don't worry. But then the other part of it is, is that we understand through, through the way life is, some people are more predisposed to worry. Some people because of their past. Some people because of the chemistry of their body. Some people just neurologically, they're more predisposed to worry. And so I want to start off by saying, if that's you, and, and as you hear this, and you're more predisposed to worry, and you realize that that's we're saying to you, it's okay to go and say, I need help with this. I need help. We have incredible Christian counselors here in our area. You know, I can't say enough about 
the Christian counselors that we have. It's good to go and get help for that. And we're not saying, hey, you're a sinful warrior. Enjoy wallowing in that. Go and get help. But on the other hand, we want you to ask questions. We're not just saying, well, some people are more predisposed, so let's just have kind of a hands-off approach to that. Yeah, that's true. There's so many sins in our life that some people in this world are slide down that it is for us. And so we want to have grace and compassion to go, well, that's not necessarily the one that I struggle with. And these people, uh, God bless them, you know, there's no hope for them. We do want to have compassion and understand. And then the last part I want to say, I hope that I speak from an area of conviction and not condemnation about this. So allow yourself to ask yourself some of these questions that we're going to be coming through and that Amy's going to ask. So and at first, we at least, we at least need to come across and say, listen, the Bible very clearly says it's a sin. Worry is a sin enough to do this. God, I don't think you're good enough for your promises to be trusted. And, and the second thing, we want to have this, at least an inner conversation with ourselves to say, I know this is wrong. What am I doing to magnify worry in my life rather than magnify the goodness and graciousness and providence of God? So having said that, let's jump into this text and let's see what Jesus has to say about it. So starting with verse 25, and if you have verse 25, open in your Bible. Verse 25 begins in, with in, in what was going on in 24 and 25. Therefore, so I tell you. And so we, we're beginning to understand right here at the very beginning of this that worry is connected to lordship. Worry is very connected to lordship. And what is the last verse we have there? No one can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. So you can't serve both God and money. And so there's a lordship issue. Who's your lord? Is, is money, is material things your lord? Is the lord your lord? Who is your lord? But the example then that Jesus gives you is food, drink, clothing. Take it down from the big idea of what am I trusting God with? Well, I'm trusting him for my salvation. I'm trusting him for my forgiveness. And he says, hang on, before we go to those big things that obviously only God can do, let's come down to some, some practical day-to-day things. You know, because when we are depending on the Lord, it's a day-to-day thing. So he brings him down and he says, I'm going to give you they're both day-to-day things and they're also life and death things. Food and drink are day-to-day things, but if we don't have them, we'll die. Clothing is a very day-to-day thing, but if we don't have it, we'll die. So come down and let's not just have that, but let's look at what we're doing. And notice also, too, in verse 25 of what he says. Verse 25 is so much of a reflection of what he said in Matthew 4-4 to Satan during his, to Jesus, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan urges him to turn a stone into bread, and he says, no, 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 no. Life is about more than that, for we don't just live by bread, but we live on every word of God. And so Jesus is trying to give us, again, not just a physical, but a spiritual picture of everything that's going on in the world. Our, our good friend Todd Bird, who is an incredible counselor, also told us this this week. One of the things that Jesus, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, don't worry, stop. He gives you something to do instead of worrying. He gives you something to do. He gives you something to do. And so he gives us something to do, and he says, look. And so you can imagine he's out on the hillside, and he says, look, look over there. And, and when he tells you to look at the birds, he's not saying, hey, it's about the birds. What he's saying is, consider the birds in light of what God does for them, and in light of how he says, look, it's not about the birds, it's about God the Father, it's about God's providence. And what we would understand is that, when we think about this, all of nature is dependent on God to function. All of nature is dependent on God. Now, when we were to list things that are positives and negatives about a relationship or about a personality, whatever, we would list dependency in the negative quality. Wouldn't we? We'd say, oh, gosh, he's so dependent on this, or she's so dependent on that, or they're so dependent on this. But it's as a wealth. And he's saying the lilies of the field, the sparrows, the birds, 
They have a wealth, and their wealth is that they are dependent on God. And don't you see, and if we go back to 19 through 24, they're plugged into the right thing. They're dependent on nature. And, and we would elaborate and say, and guess who's also a part of nature? We are. We're the crowning jewel of nature. We were the last thing created. And so he even says this, and you are so much more precious than them. You are so much more precious. Don't, Jesus then enters this time element into it. And we said it before, you can't add a single moment to your life, but you can add burden to your hours by worrying. And so part of this time element that we struggle with, where it says in verse 27, you can have a bondage in your hours. And the way time will work on you is you will either think in your anxiety and worry that God is not big enough and good enough to deliver you from what you have done in your past, nor is he big enough and good enough rested in the day. And as a worship leader, this is the part that I come back and I want to speak to you about and say, listen, you know what day we have to worship the Lord? Today. That is the only day that we have. And if you were to say, I will lay up my worship tomorrow or I will rest in what I did yesterday, you have wasted your sacrifice of worship because the day that we have to worship the Lord and give him glory is today. And you cannot worry and worship God at the same time. So he's saying you're either going to be arrested by the past or arrested by us that God is both big enough and he's good enough. Then we get verses 28 and 29. And 28 and 29 come together and they kind of are, are they're, they're these joint verses. Because in that society, you have to remember that clothing was a symbol of status. And somewhat we can relate to that, but we wouldn't necessarily list, you know, colors. We would say the designers. But back then, even colors would have been, if, if you dressed in rich colors, you had the, the money to have those cloths be dyed and the expenses to do that. So he's talking about something that is maybe a little bit to someone else. And Jesus is absolutely all about comparison in this text. But notice that he doesn't say, hey, if you compare yourself to this rich person. No, he says, listen, let's have a different kind of comparison. Compare Solomon to the lilies of the field. Compare Solomon to the lilies of the field. Compare them. And Jesus invites comparison. But again, he's talking about this this intricate beauty that they have is because God the Father is not just a God who cares in this overarching big he came Holy Spirit against working against worry that works in your life. As you were to say, Holy Spirit, if I'm going to take what you say, or Jesus, what you say right here in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. When you seek first the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit allows you to see the stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of little small details of the way that God cares for you, of the way that he loves you. It's not just, it's not just that Jesus died on the cross for me and, and we want to say, well, that's great, but that didn't really help me with my problem right now. We want to say that covers everything, all this in heaven too. That There's all these details and consider the ways that he does it, the lilies of the field. And so in verse 30, verse 30 is the part that you and I get the hope for. And this is the hope against our worry. And the hope is this. God can care for you better than you care for yourself. Second thing, God loves you more than you love yourself. Third, God knows more about what you need in this life than you know yourself. Don't be a consumer who is consumed with consumption. Don't be a consumer who is consumed with consumption. This well-nurtured worry that then turns into anxiety, this fed worry. He said, don't be that way. And so in verses 31 and 32, verse 31 and 32, he begins to draw this comparison between people who worship the Lord and pagans. And this is hard because when he says, when you worry, you're acting first like either you're a practical atheist. And that's what we say. A practical atheist means I might profess the Lord with my mouth, but I live as if he's not really here. 
Or if you're a pagan, you would believe that there were gods, and this is what he's comparing them to. There were gods, but they were fickle. They were junior high in nature. Have you read the Greek and Roman god pantheons? They're having love affairs with each other and spats and feuds and hurt each other's feelings. And really, they're quite impotent. They can't even get messages to each other. They're so impotent, you couldn't just go to one for all your needs. If you needed rain, you went to this one. If you needed fertility, you went to this one. If you had fear, you went to this one. If you were going on a trip across the ocean, you went to this one. Just think about how how impotent they are. And he says, when you don't come to the Lord and you make worry your occupation, you're being like pagans. And so I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to take a whole part of this in my sermon in the, in 11 o'clock contemporary, but to say, when you worry, you destroy your testimony. When you worry, you destroy your testimony. Blessing the faithfulness of God that you have experienced in your own life because you know it, because he came through for you, because you did have an issue, because you trusted, and then God comes through and he holds you. Or maybe God doesn't come and bring food, or God doesn't come and bring the job, or God doesn't come and make the person live, or whatever it is, but God holds you through it. And you have that testimony, but if you're a warrior, you don't. Your testimony is as good as a pagan. Until we get to verse 33. Verse 33, then, is a reflection back on verse 21. So I'll read verse 21 to you. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it first. Come to its lie. If it is under the lordship of the Father, you can rest. Worry is literally run out of town by the kingdom of God. It is run out of town on a rail. It is uninvited. It is unwelcome. And so then we get verse 34, and verse 34 I think is beautiful because it's this whole idea that we need to say to young Christians or to Christians that have been caught up in the prosperity gospel or Christians that have been caught up in just false teaching because Jesus' religion, if you just believe in me, it's all going to be all right. He never teaches that. This is completely a parallel to John 16, 33, where he says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. And then he says this, But take heart, I have overcome the world. He says there's always going to be cause for worry. There's always going to be cause for worry. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, there will be cause for worry. But you have a choice to put your faith in me and not well well nurture. Worship is for today. You can't worship and worry at the same time. And so this part where we're coming into it, Amy's going to come and she's going to come and bring Bob's points uh, to you, his points of application. So Amy has has the incredible task of uh preaching someone else's sermon so y'all make sure you give her your attention and every once in a while give her like an amen or like a yes yeah, sister or something like that that'll make her feel encouraged love you <laughs> oh heavens i've uh I've, this is an aside entirely but we've got time um i've told the story to the staff a few times that i went to seminary at gardner webb and about 35 to 40 percent of our class was african-american and when I did my first preaching class, you have to stand up and preach. And I had never done this before. And so um, I prepared the way white people often prepare to preach. And I wrote out a manuscript, and I prepared it, and I knew it. And I stood up, and about three minutes in, my friend on the front pew, who is a, about a 55 or so, you're doing that. <laughs> I never got my composure back together. So don't yell at me. Um, anyway, this week I have had a lot of worries, uh, which is special because I've also been on vacation. But let me back you up and say, like, Monday through Wednesday, I was really worried about, can I do a whole week's worth of work before I leave town Wednesday night? And then Wednesday night when I was on a plane down to uh, the Florida Panhandle, I started to get worried when I felt this really intense pressure behind my left eye and in my sinuses. And I was worried that I was getting a Friday. I was worried that I might never make it out of the bed because I was just laid out with a sinus infection in Florida. 
and I was worried that I would infect the kids because I was signed up to do uh, Big City Studio this Sunday. So I texted Sharon Rao, who I'm sure is back there, like, not believing me now. Uh, but I texted her and said, Sharon, I'm really sorry. I know I'm signed up to do this, but I just I don't even know if I have the energy to, like, move today. I don't think I should be around the children. And then we kept going, and, and she signed up somebody else. Thanks, Sharon. I was getting ready to come back home. I got a text from Pastor Bob that said... Hey, I'm not at the office, but um, tell me again what your travel schedule is. And that was probably the most worrisome thing of all, because Bob does not text just to chat about travel schedules. And I told him, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to, you know, fly home. I was supposed to get home at lunchtime. My flight's been delayed. I'll be home around dinner time. And I get a text that I've just got to read to you verbatim, because this is what I came into. He said, well, the reason I'm asking is that Linda came... I just talked to Lori, and so far we're moving ahead as planned, but I'm just wondering what our options are if one or both of us is incapacitated. I have never in my life gotten good news that had the word incapacitated in it. So the day went on, and eventually I got a copy of his sermon manuscript, and late last night, somewhere around 11 o'clock, I think we determined that I win the prize of being most likely to be least incapacitated. So like Paul said, today I have the joy of doing for the first and I hope last time. I think having a manuscript made it better, but I'm, I'm going to skip over his intro. This is going to be in a uh, manuscript that I'll post online hopefully tomorrow. Uh, the, the very first line of Bob's sermon manuscript is, When I first read and pondered Jesus' words in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, it reminded me of a legendary comedy sketch with Bob Newhart. Now, the Bob Newhart show ended in 1978, which is a full seven years before I was born. <clears throat> so, but we'll pick up about halfway through and indulge me. So, what do we do with this worry, and, and what is Jesus telling us to do about that worry? Well, the first thing is to confess it and to own it. Jesus presumes when we get to this part of the passage that we already know the lesson in the Psalms, which is that God can't just handle, he invites brutal honesty about our worries and our fears but there's a lot more to the word confess. Worry, Pastor Bob thing, that's good news. So why are you thinking is sin good news? Well, in today's culture, most people aren't likely to tell you that anything is a sin. Your therapist isn't, at least not at first. But in our role as uh, your pastor and your preachers, we get to tell you about sin. And no matter how hard we try to look at what Jesus is saying in this passage and make it something else, we can't make it anything other than sin. One commentary is practical atheism and an affront to God. So even preachers and pastors don't tend to use that S word as much as we used to or even should now. And it's probably because it's an overreaction to some of the ways that preachers have used it in the past. Um, sin as a concept has been really abused as kind of a, a hammer of guilt to put you in a different category. Uh, to make you feel like you're someone who's unworthy of association with all the rest of us good people who have it all together. To give you shame if you're a worrier. Like Pastor Paul touched on earlier, there, there might be two different reasons that you worry more than most people. And one is internal and the other is external. And by external, we mean that you really might have a harder time in life than other people you know. Life is hard right now and the natural trajectory is that your situation just might get worse. And by internal, we mean that some people are just predisposed to worry. And it, it could be hereditary and it could be your mom or dad, be a lot of uh, worrying. And that shaped who you are and how you see the moment. Now here I'm going to take an Amy break. This is not in Pastor Bob's manuscript. 
um, and reiterate what Pastor Paul said, that clinical issues that you can't change, like diagnosed anxiety, are kind of neutral. I would not say that is a sin. But you can choose a God-honoring response to that, or you can choose a sinful response to that. So willfully nurturing your worry, or being owned by it, is still... Just because you might be predisposed to it doesn't mean you get a pass from admitting that it's a barrier between you and God, between you and others, or both. And that's fundamentally what sin is. It is something that separates us from God. So Jesus is doing with worry the very same thing he did with greed in the previous passage that we looked at last week. And it's the same thing he did with giving and prayer and fasting in the section before that. And it's the same thing he did with topics like lust and anger in chapter 5. Matthew 5 through 7 is designed to expand the definition of sin while we often try to contract it, shrink it down. And I think that's because when we really understand the nature of sin, we stop thinking of ourselves as better than other sinners. If you start opening up every place where we might hide, Jesus kind of levels the playing field. He says there's no rock that you can hide under that we won't turn over. If you worry, welcome to the community of those who fall sin. You are so much more comfortable around other sinners. You're at home. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and for The other reason that this is good news is that confessing sin is the best thing that can happen to us. We worry about being exposed and being vulnerable, but exposure is exactly the place where we find healing. If you've been reading through our 150 Days of Prayer devotional guide, uh, you would have read Judy Stewart's recent devotion about Psalm 32, where King David shares the incredible blessing of being forgiven. And as Judy said... David reveals that the choice to live was literally killing him. If you're trying to excuse your worry as justifiable because of what's happened to you or allowable because that's just who you are, stop it. Confess it for what it is, and you'll be amazed at how much freedom there is in naming it before God and in the right context before other people. When you get there, you have a whole new reason to bask in the grace of God that because Jesus died for your sins, you are forgiven, declared perfect by God the Father. And that is the good news. More than once in this passage, Jesus redirects the attention of the worrier. He doesn't just say, stop worrying. He says, replace your worry. Notice the birds of the air. Ponder the lilies of the field. Allow them to take you to even deeper reflection of your heavenly Father. Jesus teaches here what Richard Rohr calls wandering in nature. He says that if you'll deliver to discover God's presence. Later in the passage, it's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is simply where God is in charge. So the focus Jesus wants is on releasing control to him and on behaviors that please him. Jesus then adds, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, he's not saying that you won't have any troubles. In fact, he specifically says, you will. And he's not promoting a direct problems. He's just saying that he will be enough for you when you focus on him. In his book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson wrote, we are what we pay attention to. So if you've become passive about what you let into your mind, 
or even worse yet, if you've chosen to pay attention to what you know will worry you, stop it. There's a wide gap between the struggle against involuntary worry and the choice to allow our eyes and ears to open the floodgate to what you pay attention to that might be feeding your worry. Now, you might feel like you don't have control over your feelings when you're exposed to some stimulus, but you probably have more control than you realize over the stimuli. The Apostle Paul, in addressing the issue of worry, says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such. Paul also says in the same book in Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Prayer and thanks are ways of paying attention to God. Meditate on the scriptures. Psalm 23 is one well-known example, but you can find so many psalms and other texts to ponder when worry is getting the upper hand in your struggle. For the next four months, we have our 150th anniversary guide with one psalm a day. Copies available. If you'd like to get it by email, get in touch with the church office. We would love to send you one email a day to focus your mind and your attention on the psalms. And finally, this passage focuses on the need for ongoing choices. Replace it is not a one-and-done solution. If you've been pursuing things that will never satisfy, stop it and instead pursue your worry. Now here we're using pursue in the sense of hunting it and chasing it. In the original Greek of the New Testament, you can translate a prohibition like do not worry as either don't keep worrying or stop worrying. So which did Jesus say? Probably both. In verse 25... He means don't keep worrying. And in verses 31 and 34, stop worrying. In other words, whether your worry is constant or occasional or just getting ready to start up, deal with it. Capable of flipping a switch. But I do think he's saying about this sin what he would about any other. And that's don't give up. Don't ever let up on the hunt any more than you would any other sin or addiction. Like Pastor Paul said earlier, for some of you, that might mean reaching out for some help. We have a new anxiety support group here on our campus that can help you, and I would love to connect you with them if that is an issue that you struggle with. We can also, any Corinth pastor, can refer you to trained Christian counselors. Compassion, but also just the firm desire to get rid of it. And perhaps most importantly, in the times when you see progress, claim the phrase, I am a recovering worrier. If you're prone to anxiety or its offspring of depression, you'll almost definitely have times when you're doing better. Those are the moments to use the energy and the progress to set in motion some new action steps and even new relationships to help you sustain that progress. Jesus came into our world so he could experience personally and directly every area of human struggle. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. I wouldn't call what he experienced there worry, because worry is a sin, and he didn't sin. But in that moment, and in so many others during his life on earth, he entered into our battle against sin. You can talk to him about this one, too. Not only does he understand it, he died and rose again, so that when you put and shame, even when you have given it to him, he sees you as an overcomer, and he will get you there. Let's pray. Lord, we are so prone to worry in our culture. We are so prone to think that 
uh, we need to be in control and that we are the ones who determine whether things succeed or fail and the outcomes. Lord, give us the strength and the trust and the faith to know that you are in control, the courage to seek the help of others to get us to the point where we can turn our worries over to you. We pray that you would give us great confidence to know that, that you know we have already overcome, that you have gone before us, and that you will get us over every obstacle and every worry in our way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.